I-V-M Before we begin, here's a quick announcement. Design Up Conference is back with the energy, the inspiration and the excitement for the 6th year. 25 speakers over 2 days, 8 unconference events and endless networking. On 17th and 18th of September in Namma, Bangalore. Be there, check out the buzz, the speakers. Register now on 2022.designup.io. This is Audio Gyan, and I am your host, Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. This Audio Gyan is in association with the Drawing Board. The Drawing Board is an international architecture platform based in India where students can test their understanding and skills in shaping the way communities live and thrive while preserving local heritage. The Drawing Board has been actively running architecture competition for undergraduate students since 2016. It was conceptualized by Mindspace Architects and Rohan Builders. This year we are back in action with a live event Architecture undergrad students can submit their project ideas on the theme for designing a memorial for Charles Korea. Last day to submit your concept is 1st October 2022. More details in the show notes and the drawingboard.in. We have one of our jury members uh, at the drawing board with us on AudioGAN, Professor Durganan Balsavar. As a founder principal architects of artists, Professor Balsavar has served as an ideational curator of Jaipur Architecture Festival. He is on several national juries and founded the Creative Think Tank Confluence 10. Besides having co-authored several books and written journals, he explores varying media in search of reimagined landscapes of the future and alternate histories. Actually, this is a very short introduction. Uh, When I heard uh, his body of work before the recording, Uh, we'll, we'll try and document some of his thoughts on intervention of architecture for social change. Uh, how he looks at history from his long-standing career. We'll also pick his brain about how can architecture communicate the greatness of Charles Korea, uh, which is the theme for this year's drawing board competition. Uh, so yeah, without further ado, uh, thank you Durganan sir. Uh, actually, thank you Durganan for giving your time. It's a real, real honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Look forward to this dialogue with you. Thank you. Because of the precursor we had our conversation before the recording, I'm there are like many, many directions I want to just uh, pick your brain and understand the amazing journey that you had. But just for the reference, I've I've come up with like uh, six to seven questions, and we'll we'll keep it slightly sort of in structure for for the format of the show. And I wanted to start off by asking, uh, what's in fact, with Henry uh, Comrie and Sachin, uh, we I generally nudge them by asking that who's an architect uh, or, or uh, what does architecture mean to you? But with you, I wanted to start by asking what's the role of an architect, right? Uh, at times, even social reformers are called as social architects. Uh, Charles Correa believed that architecture and urban design were instruments of social change. So can you elaborate on this idea like what what? In fact, yeah, what's what's the role of an architect, in your opinion? Thank you, Kedar, for this uh, wonderful invitation to this dialogue. <laughs> I have to also thank uh, Mindspace Architects, architect Sanjay Mohe and Rowan Builders. 
for conjuring such an important idea more than a competition per se an idea of a tribute to <clears throat> a profound architect and human being like charles korea so thank you for the invitation kedar welcome uh, this is an important question because these are questions that not only architects but even common i would say the societies itself is asking you know some almost everybody is asking us this and <clears throat> architects themselves are reexamining the role in a very fast changing society that we find ourselves in and many new possibilities have emerged partly also because of technology and because of this dramatic social and political change that we are experiencing many new possibilities are emerging from collaborating on improving the condition of the environment our cities villages addressing issues of climate change issues of energy also now it's expanding to look at energy because buildings are probably consuming 60 to 70% of the energy on the planet so if an architect can shift that we do we can reimagine how do we inhabit this planet you know it's which is becoming more and more unsustainable we all are sensing it so addressing these issues addressing issues of interiors ergonomics you know sitting comfortably so architecture as a discipline has such a huge span that the architect has a possibility of designing from a door knob to a city to a region you know it's, it's like a but i think an architect needs to understand that it's a collaborative process he works with anthropologists he works with social scientists urban planners uh poets poets so i think it's yeah filmmakers you know so i think architects need to realize that it's a collaborative process so when we talk of a role the role is really a collaborative role and we've found that let's take the challenges of affordable housing or the challenges that we need good hospitals we need a good cultural center we need better urban space so this means that there are so many unfulfilled needs and this is where i would say we can see architect charles korea and several of the first generation architects contribution that they perceived architecture as a vehicle for social change now what happens is that when there are unfulfilled needs these unfulfilled needs begin to embody our aspirations and desires so when they embody our aspiration and desire by an architect responding to these needs they could be functional they could be psychological at some levels even spiritual so there are various levels of needs that when we build something it could be a shrine it has another kind of context it could be a home it could be a hospital very pragmatic it could be a bus stand so in responding to the unfulfilled i would say architecture become becomes this instrument or vehicle of social change and it is with that spirit that architects have been engaged with the practice i hope that kind of response to it yeah i think i have to consume it slightly more number of times to understand but what i get the drift is these are like responses uh keeping the lateral sort of disciplines in mind and then like looking at holistically rather than just like building a space or just like building a building 
Yes, very true. See, like for if I can qualify it, it is like, uh, how does an architect appreciate or understand a need? Hmm. Now, let's assume that he had to say, let me design a good hospital. Now, unless he has a good relationship with the doctors, hmm. unless he spends time to immerse in how a hospital runs and what are the issues and how they can be improved, uh, which is again a collaborative way of looking at it, uh, one cannot design a good hospital. But isn't and it yet, isn't it little impractical in today's time? You're saying that the today's time would be slightly skewed, but that, that's how it was originally supposed to be. Is that what you're hinting towards? I would say in today's time, also, it's possible. Um, and architects have explored other ways of uh, looking at it. For instance, one simple way, and I'm talking simple, is that an architect says, I designed two or three hospitals and now I've got an experience. In this mm. practice, I will only now design hospitals for the rest of my life. And so a certain kind of focus evolves because now he's beginning to understand that typology or that function better because with every good design for instance we had created a few uh, design courses outside of architecture these were BDES and MDES courses that we created to look at what is the agency of design to improve life let's say not only architecture agency of design for instance, we go to a railway station and we always wonder why is a platform so low and the carriage so high? We have wondered, I think, for 40 years or 50 years. And if an elderly person or someone with heavy luggage has to get in, we will see how difficult it is to get into a carriage in a railway station. So we did a few designs where there was a kind of hydraulic ramp, you know. I hope the railways uh, incorporate that in all the stations. Hmm. Where you didn't have to do major redesign of all the railway stations, you know. But you can get in these additional ramps and it's an issue of design, it's an issue of architecture. And that is what inspires social change. Because it's, it's just inspiring the way in which we live it is inspiring uh, the comfort and convenience of how we live. And I think that's what starts. For instance, affordable housing. There's so much work to be done uh, in designing a simple space uh, in an affordable manner. So much. It's it's the field is vast open, you know, to design. And this these are the areas where uh, social change can happen and it is collaborative because an architect may discuss with I discuss with when I'm doing work in remote rural areas I discuss with anthropologists or sociologists from TIS they come from mm. and they give such new insights uh, on what are the possibilities of uh, intervention in a let's say remote village at the same time when we discuss with the communities in those villages we find they are carrying indigenous knowledge which is centuries old a five-year education or a 20-year education can't match 
the depth of knowledge that I see in a Rajasthani carpenter who has been a carpenter for 10 generations from the 10th century. Now, the way he understands wood, the way he works with wood, I doubt even the best university in five years can train uh, an architect or a designer to understand the material to the profound. It's almost as if he they know the material so well. You know, a Japanese carpenter I once met, he could hold the wood and tell me which part of the tree it is coming from. So whether it's a bark, whether it was three feet high, whether it was 10 feet high in the bark, just by holding the density holds and sees the grain he can tell. So the issue is how much do we understand the materials we have with us? How much do we understand the possibilities of those materials? And how do we then respect and engage with it? So what is social change? Social change in a simple sentence is improving the quality of life. Improving the quality of life becomes social change. Then we can add so many academic layers and we can say this, we can debate. That's a separate thing. But if I was to just stand there and speak in a simple way in a school and someone said, what is social change? It is improve the quality of life. And in improving the quality of life, do it judiciously. Do it in a simple way. Do it understanding the materials we are working with and uh, minimize wastage so i think if that and also and also work with the community which we'll come back to because yes, your definitely. work and practice has been like that uh, so so sorry to interrupt yeah. but there was one more sort of a tangential question because when you said that uh, you need to like really work with the people and in in case of low cost housing and also uh, I heard, I don't know, maybe you can throw some light on this. Uh, during the Latur earthquake, there were a lot of these first generation architects who were called and asked to like do the redevelopment. And there were conflicts and there were disputes because it was considered to be more of a commercial project ki fatafat kuch bana do, as opposed to, uh, I, I don't know the architect name who was actively involved in this, but maybe you can give some uh, what happened there. And it was supposed to sort of work with the local people and build for them uh, as opposed to ye lo ek building aur ye hum laga rahe and now you have to stay there were like these sort of some some thing which i heard uh, you no, know about yes it? i was actually this <clears throat> i was involved in latur when i when it happened mm -hmm. so i did visit latur but that time i was i would say just beginning so it was, i was very young so i won't say one had the kind of insights and experience that we have today. But when one, so I won't really look at the projects per se or who was involved, what was, we won't, I would rather look at it conceptually. Hmm. That when I visited, not only Latura, I would say even during the Gujarat earthquake and many other uh, disasters, when we were invited to, I found that there was a there was a way in which a house was being pre-designed to urban standards hmm. and literally being imposed in these rural hinterlands. And uh, sometimes there were 
there was funding coming so there was funding and uh, in response engineering response they were building igloos for the community and when i say igloos that shape the igloo shape where you go in through a tunnel but built in concrete or something and told this is earthquake resistant so if and the community would abandon it and go because they are living in a home with a courtyard it could be a small room there is a tree outside the animals are part of the family and here now we are looking at an engineering solution pre designed factory made in the urban area and then we think that being in an urban area the village being we perceive wrongly as primitive and we go and say we are providing you better solutions these are generally the uh, discussion that happens and then we say because the village abandoned everything that we constructed they are disrespectful to our work so this has been the paradigm so when we were invited to we didn't go actually it just happened because of the gujarat earthquake we were invited to morbi and those areas to work with the community and i had already seen these experiences and people were already telling me that most of these homes get abandoned mm. so we shifted the process at that time and we said we will design we will design with the community and so the designing was happening with the community uh now rutledge press and few others have published it for the first time otherwise it was not uh published in that sense it was not in the domain but now in the last 3 years a lot of publications are coming acoustics has published domus has published this because this was not seen as a process at that time at that time when we were doing it it was seen as the architect has to do the design and send it and if the architect sits with the community and designs it means uh he's not an architect those were the perceptions we were dealing with 30 years ago and uh, today it is today everyone is discussing it it's glorified in a very different way and uh, that's a separate story but when we were doing it because we felt it had to be done that way i think the feeling was that it's not the role of an architect to do that and but we found that if we are catalysts so we just come in where it came to safety where it came to services where it for instance let's say the television has come in or the motorbike has come in i think even in a city it happens if someone builds a big bungalow and buys a ferrari or a audi he would like to park the ferrari in the living room um so it happens in the city also i'm not saying if i if the person has bought a ferrari is not going to put it in the back in a garage and lock it you know it has to be in the front gate or you know it so in the village also we found that if someone bought a motorbike they were parking it in the living room and staying outside because for them the motorbike was a ferrari you know they they would park it there so we were dealing with 
these kind of experiences in the architectural construction of a habitat. It was not design a home, give it, come back, uh, finished one single bedroom, double bedroom. Those are all definitions. But if when it moves to processes and one keeps an open mind, I think what comes about is, is something we cannot uh, foresee. And uh, then I, we realized each time we were going into a remote village where nobody had gone before and either it was an earthquake or it was a flood or it was the tsunami. tsunami yeah. We found that they had building practices, living practices. Like once I had an injury on my hand and, and they said the hospital is like some one and a half hours away. So I was in this and I have an injury on the hand. And they said, no, no, let's organize to go to the hospital. And I said, let's... An elderly man came. He must, they were saying he's 80 or 90 years old. Very elderly. And he said, you come with me. On the outskirts of that village, there were some four plants. He crushed the leaves and he applied. He said, in three minutes, five minutes, it will just stop. It will all be cured. And it just stopped. I was perfectly fine in five minutes. So, Amazing. they have connection with indigenous plants, medicines, practices. They understand the climate, which we need to learn when we go there. These are thousands of years, you know. So, how do we go as architects to go there and say, we'll construct a concrete house and come back? When... In fact, in fact, again, sure sure. Twitter, but that's that's that takes me to the next uh, question, which is a very perfect segue because uh, what happened is uh, what happens in typically in in the the place where I design, there are certain first principle thinking, right, as we call it, uh, and we have this constant debate between our community as well that should you go out to users and ask what they want and build it accordingly or come down slightly the Steve Jobs kind of a route where I know what you want uh, and uh, I've observed you but I, I, I don't hear you. I observe you uh, and I know the pain points and I'll design it with little bit of instinct, little bit of gut and give you a better product. Um, so that's where the first principle thing comes in. In this setup, how would you define like because you're designing for a community uh now uh yeah i mean and and these outcomes are also sort of intangible as you said the person might want to put a house or put a bike in his like living room so is there any first principle thinking in this context no i think that's a very pertinent question because that's the uh paradox of question we confront in our studio almost every day when we're working you know because it goes back also to the earlier question, what is the role and responsibility of an architect? And we have to wonder when you do this, has the responsibility shifted? What has happened, you know, in this process? As we see it now, again, I will, I will say it in very simple terms, but it is not as simple as it is being discussed. I think as an architect, what we cannot abdicate whether the community is there or not. What we cannot abdicate as architects is we need to observe the site. We need to understand the patterns of that site. We need to understand why is it flooding. We need to understand why those calamities are hitting that village because 
even with their thousands of years of experience, they've still been subject to calamity, you know. Hmm. So we need to understand. So it's not as if they were completely perfect or they knew everything. The, the fact that they are subject to it means that there is an area and that is the area where an architect becomes a catalyst. So <clears throat> because and that is the area of social change because now it comes to the simple definition that it is improving the quality of life. Now this is where the question comes improving by whose standard? By whose framework? Hmm. The architect who has been trained in Europe and coming back and improving with his standard or improving with an understanding of what the community desired as improving their life. So that is the bridge which takes a conversation for us. It takes six months, seven months of conversation. Uh, we've been uh, fortunate to have patrons the Tata Trust have been our patrons. Rolls-Royce has been our patrons. So we've been fortunate to have patrons who today have patience with us. They didn't have patience when we started. They used to feel uh, maybe one is wasting time sitting in. So that those issues were coming up. But I think today one recognizes that that conversation enriches a project because when that conversation has not happened uh, those communities and all those 500 1000 5000 homes have been abandoned and gone so imagine constructing these homes and they are abandoned so when we are doing it with a dialogue with the community and it is mm. built they feel that and we if the community doesn't have the building skills, we train them for six months to a year to build. And uh, they build their own home. The own home they build is most often better than the best contractor made home in the city. And that is because they're building their own home. They check the quality of every brick they're building. So we now see that they're building their own home. It is a good quality home. And instead of giving a donation, they have acquired a skill. They have acquired a new construction skill. And of course, their earnings go up in a, I would say, quite high from what they're earning to become in the construction world. Their earnings go up. They built their own home. So we found that, yes, it is. It does need little more investment of time and effort and patience as if we were to design a two-room house and just send it to site and get it constructed. I agree that's a simpler, efficient process. But hmm. after that, if a community is going to abandon all of it, I think that's where we have to discuss whether that haste was beneficial or wasteful. So mm -hmm. that is how we have kind of discussed it most of the time that we know that. And in fact, the UNDP invited us each time when large number of homes were abandoned. And we had to go back into that community of the abandoned, sit and discuss with the community with the abandoned homes. We would refine the design of the abandoned homes Sometimes I have to demolish parts and redesign, redefine privacy levels, all that. And then they have come back. But 
that is a retrofitting kind of a work, you know, which uh, one would rather have done it as a process. And I would say when mm. we were doing it in the initial years, we were doing it intuitively just because we felt this is the way. Today, having built, I would say one has a clarity to discuss it. You know, on, now one will see what happened. But when we were doing it, we just felt this was a more humane way to do it. And we didn't have reasons. We didn't have explanations. We didn't have... Uh... So today, yes, today we are in a position, and I would say through the pandemic, one reflected even more on all this. And uh, we realized today, I think one is a little more convinced that that should be the way. Earlier, I would say this could be the way. We've come to, I think this should be the way is what we are suggesting. So what I get is that abandoning those community is sort of one way to measure that it was successful or not are there any and I'm, I'm sure there must be many ways to really understand or or measure the outcomes because which are intangible right i mean they, they are not able to like celebrate festivities as required or or maybe the sanitization is not really good so um, one has to like like i'm sure utne detail mein it would be tough for anybody to uh, uh, keep monitoring and improving so any like the broad stroke is just abandoning or there are like some big pillars of to measure there are enough pillars there are enough pillars hmm. uh, i would personally i'm not sure how many an agreement i would personally look at it in two parts one part or the most important part is actually tangible and measurable it is when we don't address the tangible and measurable that abandonment happens. Now, what is, so, you know, otherwise we're going to make this esoteric and say, you know, that's how people get away on the abandonment by saying, you know, you can't really know this and it's very qualitative and we, we put it into the unknown to justify why the delivery is not happening, you know. And I have found that in the conversations with the community, it is very pragmatic. Their needs are very pragmatic. Their needs are very frugal. Uh, they are not really avaricious. They're very frugal, pragmatic. They live on such small means. And with the small means, they are joyful, happy. Every celebration they're you know, celebrating so it just means how much does one need him? How much does one need? And if I converse, whenever we are conversing with them, what was what was going? I'll give a simple example. We went to one community and most of the houses had got <clears throat> uh, demolished with the tsunami. There was almost no house. So we didn't have a history of what this community was. So I talked to the elderly and I said, can you all draw the house? So this some drew and you know, we, and what we do is when we go into these communities, we, we either go to an abandoned building or we go to a, any shrine. It could be any shrine. It could be a temple, church, mosque, guru, any shrine. And we request the priest and that becomes our office. So there's no rent for the office. We make that the office. 
And the reason we make it office is to show that we also don't need anything. So there is no office, there is no, you know. And then what we do is that <clears throat> many times if we don't have the histories, we request the community that will gather together and build one home which was there pre the disaster because there's no building, it was completely wiped out. So they build one home. When they're building the home, we observe. That home they build in 45 days, 60 days, we observe. And when that observation is happening, neighboring villages, we also map to see how they were living, what they were doing. And generally, tests or many of the sociologists are with us. So we're discussing, you know, what happens. They even guide us on gender issues, what will happen. So there are, there are all these other layers. So we are doing that. And then we come back to the community. So... Often the donor or the collector or the chief secretary will ask us, see, to design two rooms, you need this kind of time. Because a non-architect can put two rooms together in less than 10 minutes. Why does one need so much time to put draw two rooms and then multiply it 5,000 times and finish off the project? I said, then let us know why are they abandoning it? So the simple thing is, in this village, we realized they have the kitchen in front, right at the entrance. Now, when an urban model comes, or let's say a so-called model house is given by an institution or the government or whoever, it is a simple two-room and the kitchen is at the back. Now, the minute the kitchen is at the back in a remote village, the woman of the home locks the front door and goes to the back. The entire village is abandoned because now everyone is at the back in the kitchen cooking. Whereas actually the kitchen was in the front and you had life happening in the village when the cooking also was happening, doing other things, multitasking, all that. So it is two rooms and you only change the location of a kitchen. And we have almost put an end to all social meeting. So these are appear minor as a drawing but in terms of its social impact uh, the social impact is very we we cannot measure the social impact till we see it so when we first drew and we said let the kitchen be in front because this is what it appeared common sense we didn't get permits the donor said this is a wrong design someone called it primitive uh, in the government, they came and said, we need an inspection. You know, whether the architect even understands what he's doing is in the kitchen, always at the back like that and, you know, all kinds of things. So it takes a lot of discussion. It appears simple, but on ground reality to get it done. Now, it's easy for us as architects to say, okay, let's put the kitchen in the back. How long does it take? And let's finish the project and come out. I'm very sure it will get abandoned at the end of it. Because it's not their way of life. And uh, so this is how I'm just giving one example like this. There are layers of example. Uh, this is just one example which is easily perceivable. There are many examples not easily perceivable like water. Now, we are aware that there is segregation in all the villages. There are issues of caste. There are issues of class. So 
it's not easy to say I'm doing an entire village and water is going to all the homes. Now, it may appear a engineering solution, but in that is embedded a social meaning. When today water is not available in all the homes, it takes us now eight months at times to address that issue. Because we are not going to let go and just say, okay, only these four people will have water and the others need not have. We are not going to agree on that. So working on that, like for instance, in one, two villages, a woman came up to me and said, she was living alone. She came up to me and said, I want to build my own home, which was our project. I said, sure. Now, fortunately, I didn't understand the problems that used to come because of gender, caste. I didn't understand. I would say it was very fortunate. So I was not biased at that time. So I said, okay. Now in those communities, a woman cannot do masonry. She should only help the man doing masonry and come and lift water and throw. She cannot develop any skill. Now I was not aware of these nuances. And when she came, I said, sure, you can do the brickwork. I called two women engineers in our group and said, teach her also brickwork. Let it happen. That whole 300 houses came to a standstill. And the community said, we cannot allow this. Uh, so when I had to spend that one month talking to the community, convincing them what happens. <clears throat> Fortunately, what happened is that just at that time, the chief minister introduced that women will have cycles. No one has recognized what that uh, initiative did. So in Tamil Nadu, the chief minister introduced that women can cycles exactly in the middle of when we were having this conflict. So that gave mobility uh, of a completely new order, you know. It actually liberated. It was gave a mobility. And I would say that gave a space for us to say, when they have cycles, why cannot they do brickwork? And uh, so sometimes, yes, sometimes it's just fortunate that something happens at another political, social level, which comes and impacts this. But this is the way in which so it, it it kind of opens the domain of an architect or architecture to collaborate understand it doesn't remain in the domain of designing it of course that is the primary responsibility of designing a good home structures climate material used judiciously used well designed that doesn't go but all correct. But 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 is it also so the bringing in expertise of certain structures or certain frameworks or certain uh, yeah I mean certain just like foundations uh, of what we learned or what we were like yeah in double quotes educated to become an architect uh, because in my in my like hundredth interview I was fortunate like Bibi Doshi gave some time uh, and he. He explicitly mentioned, uh, I mean, he gave me a little bit of a dart that back in India, like, 
people used to collaborate it was no sort of aisa nahi ki koi ek architect hai and somebody is coming and just like uh, asking you to do this but they used to build together so you are saying in the projects that you have dealt um the the architect as you mentioned has just become a catalyst because of that education otherwise it's almost organically being built by the community itself is that what i understand yes, correctly yes i would put it this way that uh in traditional times let's say early beginnings ancient and in all probability the act of construction was collaborative so there were these communities that could gather together and it was collaborative but koi hard skill nahi like they don't require or they had it or hard skills no they could have been multi talented but hard skills were done in a context now in a social context now what is that social context we may we may i'm not saying it's positive i'm just discussing there was a context i'm not saying it is positive it had all its uh problems also it was not a democratic context there was no accessibility for everyone justice was already in a hierarchical system all that was there but it was a context where which was accepted by the entire community hmm so there was never a sthapati or a carpenter or someone when they're building collaboratively i doubt a situation was there where somebody comes and says now my entrance is to be uh you know an arch like this which i saw when i was in portugal or someone else comes and says now mine has to be like it was not like that it was more a community architecture so we won't hear too many names of architects in that collaborative process there was no authorship and uh, there was no need to say i will design differently so that i get my identity there was so if we go to jaipur we go to udaipur or we go to any of these ancient towns venice there is a certain unity and harmony of the entire city hmm uh each home doesn't try to show the prowess of that architect by changing the color or bringing something different or so the very meaning of creativity the many meaning of collaboration the very meaning of how a dwelling or a shelter is constructed was very different that was collaborative today what has happened is that in the last 100 150 years authorship came now i'm not saying one is better the other is not i'm not getting in that we need to know there were two systems let everyone choose or let each one choose which of the system so when authorship comes identity comes and then some kind of a design gets associated with a certain kind of architect it's not any more as much a cultural or a community social phenomenon it becomes an individualistic design so there are uh many many ways and new layers that come out uh from an individualistic versus a cultural process as architecture as a cultural process and i think that's the 
in the area of collaboration, that's the area. So when an architect collaborates in today's times, I think an architect has to be a little more mature and profound that it is not perceived as an issue of authorship and identity. But it is... I, I would I would simply put it as... Yeah, because I, I like... I don't know whether the gardener came first or the garden was there and that's why we needed gardeners. But I think the gardeners came first and they said we need a garden. Yeah, it would be... <laughs> this is where it... The line, historic line, we may not be able to excavate. You know, that's a mm, moment mm. pre our memory. But we know that these two kind of situations or collaborations exist. And therefore, yes, the collaborative way is definitely a more harmonious way. But we've moved into a way which, uh, which rewards excellence, identity, competition, uh, having to defer to prove your, it is innovative. So we have kind of conditioned ourselves to it, you know, right or wrong, I'm not getting, but so these are two different, one is a competitive way, the other is the collaborative way. I think in the end, some in-between bridge is what we will try to discover, you know, because <clears throat> challenging oneself is also healthy, you know, challenging oneself, moving to something new, discovering new is exciting. But at the same time, how do we collaborate as a community, carry so many minds, or uh, try to establish a certain resonance of thinking. These are other challenges that we face. Yeah, it will balance it out on its own. There will be these counter forces which will uh, sort of, yeah, I'm sure you must have traveled so you have, you have seen it. Uh, but uh, again, so slightly changing tracks, even in our tech world, we have this sort of fail fast ideology, right? Uh, and in one of your conversations with the legendary New York architect, Stephen Hall, uh, he also said, like, disobedience is important for an architect. And you got to fail, fail again and feel better. So I just wanted to understand ke, how does it work? I mean, because there are massive costs involved, there's infrastructure, there's people here. Uh, and, and when you're collaborating, there is a certain mutual trust so no, multiple layers around it, right? Uh, maybe you can just explain that bit. And if, if that requires, like, what does fail and success mean also in, in this context? Uh, what, what like, I, from my layman understanding, the closest example I could give is that the, there was some building in London which was designed, uh, which had a concave sort of a, a thing. And then people were getting heat burns because during the day when the sun was up, because it was like highly reflecting the rays. So now that's a massive blunder. I don't know. You built like a big building, which has gone wrong. So that's my understanding. Maybe that's a different understanding for failing. No, also. I, if I can, I think that's an, that's a important question you're raising because <clears throat> the building, I don't know which building it was, but if it, if there was a building like that, uh, I would say that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. An architect has a responsibility, he has a social role, and he has a professional commitment. So that is not acceptable. 
Now coming to, so I'm very clear, it's categorically not acceptable. Now coming to what you referred in the context of Stephen Hall, I would, and I've got this question several times because uh, it's a very pertinent question. Everyone would, you know, get back to me on it. If we see the overall context of what he's saying, he's saying disobedience is important for an architect. Now we need to understand here. So as I see it, what Stephen Hall was referring to is not failure at all. Uh -huh. now let me build on this argument. It was he was not discussing failure at all. Not even the the kind of London failure was not discussing at all. That office that? and many of these respected offices get some of the most complex assignments and projects across the world. They cannot afford the kind of failure you were discussing. So that he's not. So as far as I understand it, and there was a context to our conversation with Stephen Hall, he was not referring to failure at all. He was referring to the spirit of remaining focused, that an architect has to remain focused on the needs of the project. Now I'll come to that an architect needs to remain focused on the needs of a project. Now how can an architect remain focused on the needs of a project? One, it needs very patient, rigorous search, which is the design process. And those then become the responsibilities of an architect. So there may be situations in the brief given by a patron or a client, there may be situations, even sometimes in competitions, and my conversation with Stephen all at that time was in the context of competitions, that the design competition may have requirements which are extremely adverse to the project itself. <laughs> that if an architect designed blindly based on the requirements which were dished out to him, to the architect, him or her, it can have an adverse impact on the project. So if that is the situation, what we were discussing is that there is a need at that time for an architect to speak to his to an architect's own inner conscience to understand what is the need because the programmatic need given is as in the architect's experience is going to have an adverse impact on the project so if it was a patron given in those building, I think an architect needs to have the courage to present it to the patron or the client uh, and very scientifically also convey why that requirement may have an adverse or a negative impact on the project. Hmm. Yeah, so now, but in a competition, let's say there's a design competition, there's no luxury of discussing with the client. So what Stephen and I were discussing there was that he suggested then, and that's what his practice does, 
that when they see a design competition and they see and many competitions may not have been carefully drafted. So there are adverse requirements in the competition hmm. for which then he says disobedience is required. Beautiful. Yeah, the disobedience hmm. comes because the architect with all humility, compassion, and responsibility for what is going to be built feels that these aspects asked for in the competition are adverse to it being built. And then the architect says, the architect will listen to one's inner conscience and risk losing the competition. Now, the risk Amazing. of losing that competition, listening to the inner conscience may be perceived as a failure. That you didn't win the competition. It's not a failure. Amazing. It's Amazing. not a failure. Amazing. So he says, hold on to that inner conscience. You will. So he, sh he discussed with me that 160 competitions they entered. Each time, because I have been observing his competitions, each time he changes the program, 130 they lost. 30 they won. Now, if he had followed the adversity, he may have won all the 160. So it's in that context, he said, that an architect listens to inner conscience. And in that, if you fail, that means don't win the project, don't get the project. It's fine. He says you fail better, understand it better, go back at it. One need not get disheartened because your energy and renewal has come in a conversation with the inner conscience and then manifesting it in a design, which you can stand by, which the architect so can stand by. Yeah. Is it so inspiring? Because again, in the digital world, we have these recently, these conversations have started about ethical design. I mean, uh, am I in Instagram designing for more addiction? Uh, or am I looking at the high paid job within Instagram, or or Facebook for that matter, or or Twitter, like, am I creating a, a polarizing machine within Twitter, by staying there? So yeah, I mean, it's just beautifully I could connect both the worlds. Obviously, design is it's common theme. Yeah, you know, and uh, to I mean, come back to the tech world, I didn't see it as a digital tech, but coming back to the tech world, if we can see a parallel, the parallel is the research lab where after, let's assume, one designed a new car. When a new car is designed, I doubt the producer says, Today in the evening, let it go to the factory. The producer says, let's make 20 of these cars and let us crash these cars. So the cars are actually crashed to check the safety standards. So those are called failure tests. Hmm. So that's the failure he's discussing, that you need to do the failure test within your laboratory it's not for the safety of the inhabitants mm -hmm. so that is 
the failure test done in the laboratory to to actually respond to some of the highest safety standards and so that's also a part of an architect so it's in that context so it's i'm happy you raised it because this many have asked me and then i realized yes there is a element where someone can misread what was stated but uh, this is the context in which the discussion was happening on an architect listening to the inner conscience to state what is required and not look at the consequence of all the time winning a competition as much as mm-hmm. responding to what that program deserves and i think that is where it is so yes the ethical question yeah. comes in there are a lot of questions there are too many layers there but i okay, think okay. i hope this kind of addresses what uh, yeah yeah totally i mean it's very beautifully and very very inspiring rather because in the car test when you said it still seems not easy but it still feels real because you are taking a car hitting and like actually saying it's a failure test in case of architecture you can't really build and stay and uh, uh, in fact when you were saying this i was just thinking about like what if someone comes and says like the most beautiful full wooden house will win the competition now that's a scary thought because yeah i mean you might make something aesthetically beautiful but using wood and like 130 colleges and 130 organizations championing for it you are your, your brief itself is wrong so maybe you can walk out of the competition no exactly yeah. so these are these are the these are the nuances to uh so it is really to protect from loss protect from massive cost protect from you know a uh, uh, hazard later on so it is really a it is something done in the laboratory or the atelier of an architect which which involves choice which involves taking a very uh, grounded decision in the context of a, a program or a need or so that is how i i have seen it when in my conversation uh, and in your own practice also at artist roots um, Uh, you you guys have taken slight a very different trajectory uh, it is research based uh, practice i mean involving involved in like ecologically sensitive design right uh, and obviously with community participation so could you share few experiences of how this research or or uh, community participation or advocacy of the other uh, or giving an agency for that matter um relate to one another and how overall like some bit about your practice if you can share i think one part more or less was covered in that community when we were speaking yeah, slightly yeah. earlier so but if i look back because this question came now i i actually looked back uh two days ago i had not really sat had not looked back like that but Hmm. the practice started in the 1990s you know the, that's when we graduated and the region was largely largely i would say the region was amdabad mumbai some parts of north gujarat goa and chennai it was called madras at that time chennai pondicherry so it was more that kind some work in kerala was happening so that is how the practice began 
And if we see it, it was uh, what one calls the socialist era before mm. the 80s, the mid 80s was a socialist era. There was, and I had returned from <clears throat> Zurich at that time. There was ETH University there, finished. I had worked in Paris with an architect called Bernard Cohn, again, who was a very strong influence on our early practice at that time. And in India, I had, so I at that moment joined Professor Doshi's office and I was invited to be a faculty at Septum Dabad, the School of Art. So it was like a, and it was also a time when Latur had happened and then later on the Gujarat earthquake. And so it, at one level, we were designing, planning, for new cities, because this whole thing of change and we know this whole idea of new economies and across national boundaries and all that discussion was happening. So at one level that was happening and there were glass buildings suddenly emerging all over the landscape, large glass buildings. Maybe some politician must have visited Dubai. No, it, that we won't know. It is, doesn't require like it. It was, I would say, it is a social aspiration. No, it was a collective mm. social aspiration. So these were emerging, and uh, so in that context, our practice started, and we found more and more there was this duality of designing <clears throat> settlement cities for the future. And at the same time, we were confronting large-scale disaster. And uh, I would say at that time, the verdict was not accepted that climate change is happening. Even as we were discussing that 90s, we are seeing climate change. It was not being accepted. I would say only now an acceptance is kind of happening. But at that time, it was not accepted. Gujarat earthquake. Then we had the floods, we had the tsunami in 2004. So, and then we had the war. Now, because we were situated in Ahmedabad and Madras, the tsunami hit the Tamil Nadu coast. The war uh, again meant implications for Tamil Nadu. And we were working in Gujarat where the <clears throat> Gujarat earthquake happened. So, I think it shaped the practice because of that. It kind of influenced the practice in a certain way, where we were looking at utopia and dystopia at the same time. We were looking at it on the same day at the same time. And so, at one level, there has to be optimism. At another level, one is just looking at the wastefulness of in the war, man-made disaster, in or it is natural disaster. Now, for us in our early practice, this got condensed at one time. You know, we were handling it. It was coming into the office at one time, one moment. It's a single moment. It was not like, okay, this project is done. So most architectural firms have a trajectory of development of this project, then they do that project, then they do a cultural center, then they do a larger project. There's a trajectory. And I think we didn't have the luxury of that trajectory because where we were situated. And uh, so most young architects begin with a small 
home of a, a relative or you know some addition on the terrace or something like that for us from the beginning we were dealing with large settlements and it was not easy <clears throat> the projects that we were handling were all large settlements there was the master plan of chennai we were invited to be in i was invited and later on briefly on an advisory committee in barcelona and berlin and uh, berlin again for climate change and energy so we kind of <clears throat> uh didn't plan but were observing what was happening and when the invitation was there we were immersing in these issues because and these were not seen as domains an architect needs to so there are several interviews with professors who come from uh, either cincinnati or texas and <clears throat> asking us why we are in this realm why is an architect in the realm of war refugees why is an and those were the questions these are all published articles and uh, can share it now it's all published on in the public domain and so at that moment 20 or 30 years back it is not as a wooden wonder but we just we went with the intuition and thought these are areas where there is not much architectural intervention whether it was shanties informal settlements affordable housing remote villages war refugees now these were not areas today yes but 30 years ago i think most architectural practices were having a shopping mall or a housing or a cultural center or a, you know those kind of defined education yeah, building also defined also. educational campuses and so this looked like almost at that time today it's accepted as a architectural practice but at that time it it meant that we had to look at advocacy because the development control regulations we found had too many inadequacies so we moved into advocacy and our advocacy at that time yes we would go to the judiciary so we went to the judiciary quite a few times uh to <clears throat> modify laws urban laws and uh, gradually that became a process and it was not to fight i think we didn't go to the judiciary to fight and we went to the judiciary to raise a issue so that there's a conversation about it you know it was just fortunate that each of those cases we were in our favor it was just fortunate mm -hmm. and because it was not a fight between adversaries i think most often the urban development in the city or if there was a commissioner would would actually be happy that the judgment went in our favor at that time and because it made the task much easier even for the administration to have a better law system so there are there are all other kinds of nuances which we learned down the line no because people said if you go to the judiciary you are going to antagonize him hmm. so i think you antagonize if the other is seen as an adversary but if the other is not seen as an adversary and it is systemic 
and it needed a judicial position to legitimize it as systemic, uh, then I think there is a new way of looking at judicial. So, Quite. so that is, these are the, I would say, learnings or insights that came down the line. And uh, so our practice, of course, we build, I build, we build this housing, large scale housing. There are <clears throat> hospitals we've done. There are uh, dwellings we have done, educational institutions. So we do build. But that building comes in a certain context. And in the remote rural hinterlands when we work, we do insist that it will be in the community with the community dialogue. So the community also draws plans like hmm. what they wish. We look at it, we 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 put up the plans and have a discussion. So it it the process is different. It doesn't happen. Of course, we give our views. We the community designs something, and it we know the lighting standards don't meet. Uh, an architect cannot abdicate their role there. We have to. Then we spend time educating. Yeah, or, I won't say educating. Maybe. Discussing with them on what that standard would mm. be. You know, mm. and uh, because it's all transformational. See, the community doesn't even most of these remote communities they don't even live in a room. They like to live in the outside. Mm. The room is only a storage space. So to tell them that this lighting standard is needed for that storage space doesn't make sense also. So I won't call it educating. <laughs> I will just mm. say that keep possibilities open so that if at some later date they decide, no, let us go and inhabit the room. That day doesn't compromise. Hmm. So, yeah, actually, this education word also came from me because of that conditioning of I know kind of a thing. No, it comes <laughs> to all of us. I I would say yeah. with years being there, I I uh, you learn it the hard way. You know, it yeah, is not as if yeah. it comes from somewhere. It is by in those contexts when one is there and one is observing, because many of the hmm. patrons ask us if you are not contributing. Uh, why do we need to have an architect? You know, they can go to the community and build. And so we have these debates because. No, oh, that's where the advocacy part will come advocacy in. Advocacy comes need... in, changes there, issues of change, uh, broadening a certain perspective, uh, translating their vision, translating, translating their vision. Is very sometimes important. in translation, again, going back to them and discussion of that translation. So it is. It is it is a formation of both, you know. We are also in formation, and the community is in formation. So it it really becomes a process like that. It doesn't become a linear process where a project came, we designed, it went to the community, and then we say participatory because they also built. Or it is not like that. This is dialogic from the beginning, and uh, that dialogue kind of builds in each time a very different way. So we cannot even generalize the dialogue. It can take any kind of term. And so the broad parameters are there. So that's how our practices have uh, <clears throat> evolved. But I see it as one continuum. I think you had asked about history. We see it really as uh, one, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah in fact, uh, in, I was going through like a couple of your articles and 
seem to be like one uh, chennai wala very important piece is that you need we need to look at the history right uh, while while designing for the future so i just wanted to before we conclude on the last topic of charles korea i just wanted to ask you ki how do you sort of see this nuance of like a seeming paradox right you are looking at the future but you need to know the history so what do you pick what do you take forward um, like if you can share something sure, again i would say even in this it's a very <clears throat> i would say in today's context even more important because yeah everything exactly. is kind of revolving around history today uh, but i would see it this way at one level we are just if you look at it in simple terms history may be seen as human experience of how to inhabit the earth let's say we kept it as simple as that so history as the human experience of inhabiting the planet that's why history so then it doesn't become paradoxical because that experience hmm. knowledge wisdom empowers us to continue building so hmm. history becomes the fuel as an experience it could be social but you need to build you need to build that faculty to look at that signal yes. or like really abstract at that level otherwise you will just like rely on maybe traditions or very very superficial absolutely levels, absolutely right? i was coming to that part so what happens is that hmm. the relationship between history cultural tradition and architectural expression that's what requires it's an important aspect that requires reflection because choices are involved choices are involved on what is valuable to retain and what has transformed so or what has changed completely like let's say for instance in the remote villages many of the remote villages we went they were designed at a time or even homes they were designed at a time when there was no television or no washing machine and when these elements come in very few recognize that it is already changing the way in which one imad inhabited the room we just adjust very few recognize so in these remote villages uh the television again would come into that single room and place right in the middle of the room all the layers of other activities that were reflecting a cultural tradition in less than 5 years have lost now i'm not saying revive i'm not i'm not getting i'm just in a very detached manner looking at what happens you know in terms of a history and then we discuss that maybe if the television was situated in a certain place maybe if the manner in which the motorbike and all these other elements were come they were located in different places the unfolding of life would have been very different now where this got tested is also in the pandemic we were in online classes 
Now till the pandemic, we had a classroom. And in the classroom, the student would come into this isolated classroom, leave their entire culture behind. So let's say there's one student who's come from the Northeast. Another student has come from Kerala. A third student we have is from South Africa. There's another student from Indonesia. But when they come into our design classroom, they've left Indonesia behind. They've left the Northeast behind. They've left Kerala behind. All those histories have been left behind because we are teaching them some color or texture or some very abstract, non-historic issues, you know, very because it's come into contemporary society. Now, what happened in the pandemic? In the pandemic, because it was online like this, I had a student now in the Northeast. I had a student in Kerala. I had a student in South Africa. So I suddenly, we suddenly realized that my classroom has no wall, right? And when we were discussing with the student in the Northeast, <clears throat> her relatives and grandmother, now they come from a, a community that lives and grows bamboo. They don't know concrete. They don't know glass. So they were curious and they would sit in front of the screen and talk. And they were now discussing with grandparents who were there in Kerala and they were discussing with another grandparent or a father in Indonesia. So what was seen as uh, an obstacle because we were in social distancing transformed online because now we had a cross-cultural classroom. Beautiful. So History walked into the classroom in very different ways. Despite having uh, technologies which we are considering very high-tech, we are very worried where our cultural systems and heritage will get wiped out because of these new changes, all those worries. And here in the two years, we were discussing and discovering that history is being born in the classroom understanding of cross-cultures being born in the classroom. It was completely a paradigm shift. So I think those, so history comes more in the idea of recognizing that there is a continuum. And so there's no paradox between the past and, but then choices are being made. Uh, we make our choices. And I think it's not so easy to say this is the right choice, that is the right choice. It's not so easy. I think that needs to be left to communities, individuals on what they uh, feel belonged and what changes. But mm. importantly now, we found that when the student was at home, so I changed the project. Actually, I completely dramatically changed the syllabus in the project. And I, we gave a program like design a home that can respond to the pandemic. <laughs> so every time they were present, even if they couldn't come on the screen, because that is the project. 
Now imagine during that time one kept the syllabus and said, design an airport, design a mall, which is generally done, or design some other typology. The student would have been struggling in the home because of the pandemic. We know how much the struggle was. Now it is much lesser. But at that time, there was uncertainty, there was anxiety. Uh, there was, we were not even opening the door. Maybe we were in the... So there was a lot of... One was not sure whether the next month there would be food. That kind of insecurity had developed. And so in attempting to design the home of the pandemic, which was a six to eight month project, the entire family was sitting and asking, should we move the dining table now to the living room and make it a study area for this person? Should we move? So the interior planning of the home happened in the classroom. Because now the home is being asked to respond to all the functions of the city. So the, the project that I had placed now this is a as an idea was and it was exaggerated so that in rhetorical so that one understands the project was till the pandemic i asked my students pre-pandemic be honest with me saturday sunday evenings were you all at home hmm. And the unanimous answer was, we were always in the city. We were traveling somewhere. We were going to some, maybe uh, <clears throat> Ajanta Elora. We were going to see some. The home was empty. The home was empty. And the city was full of traffic and packed. Mm. Pandemic made the home packed and there was nobody in the city and public space. Hmm. So that was the design issue given to them. And we don't realize that when we did such a dramatic social change, we needed to rethink the home. We okay. somehow, because we are strong, accommodated to it. Hmm. But so that was the project given. And so each home and each family, so that's where history comes into uh into the discussion because the family in Meghalaya was suggesting how they have dealt with the with their traditional practices, the way they meet. And a family in Kerala was saying that's a good idea. We didn't think about it. Hmm. And so that is how the pandemic got panned out for us in 2019. Got it, got it. And that is where history comes into, you know. I've just meandered a little, but since you <laughs> asked that question, I thought maybe, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's, it's very sort of insightful. Uh, and, and when you said about choices also, typically when you do a choice today, it's someone like in future, it's an insight for them because then you can, yeah, you can just infer the choices they have made and then like build on top of it. Yeah. Um, cool. So Durgana, I just wanted to like uh, one last question, which was um, at at uh, TDB, the drawing board this year, uh, the theme is design a memorial for Charles Korea. Uh, and even Charles Korea didn't see sort of, 
he he had a different vision which uh, you you worked with him you'll be able to tell better but then can one somebody sort of uh and and again sanjay mohe in his in his like brief said that can you design something which is uh, intangible uh, or or can you bring in an emotion to it so can like a simple can can a legend be witness uh, through his work and then can it be reproduced in a way or any anything that you have in mind because as charles korea didn't see tradition and modernity as mutually exclusive um, keeping that as principle or other office principle can it be translated uh, any any thoughts there and we can continue. i think that's also very significant uh, aspect you have brought up hmm. and i think architect sanjay mohe conveyed it uh, very well in the introductory uh, video he had made hmm. now to that question i would say that if one were to visit the different projects uh, of charles prayer you know whether it's gandhi ashram bharat bhavan the early homes in amdavad i think they've been demolished but anyway the the drawings and photographs exist in some form the lic the, colony in borivli is also done by him yes the lic colony then <clears throat> you have explore other explorations in housing that he has done mm. belapur uh one in south bombay in, yeah south bombay jawar kala kendra in jaipur then in bangalore so there is in portugal the later the last project in portugal so there is there are diverse projects you know that architect charles kurel and each of them uh represent or embody a certain uh idea or vision of how <clears throat> that program can manifest you know for instance let's gandhi ashram uh appears very simple but at another profound level represents the almost the simplicity of gandhi and yet the freedom that he was discovering you know so the the manifestation of the project kind of resonates with what the reason for its very being you know and i think that that's a profound ability that uh architect charles kurya particularly had of interpreting reinterpreting and then manifesting it through a design and construction so that is one uh legacy that <clears throat> enables us to continue the conversation with his work besides that i would say there are writings and drawings uh a lot of uh insightful essays and they're all available uh in the public domain and the charles korea foundation in goa also if oh, somebody is yeah. interested has the archives so these are all i would say building up and the idea of urbanity these all and there's a wonderful film done by a filmmaker called arun kokkar it's a wonderful film we hope we can get the permissions to run the film which kind of uh <clears throat> convey uh those concerns you know mm. 
challenges and the spirit. So I would say architecture, one, while it represented or embodied the agency for social change, at a deeper level embodied an idea of the free spirit of India's independence. That's what he was searching, you know. And how does one, through an architecture, convey that free spirit and yet be grounded in its memory of being one of the oldest living cultures? I think that was the challenge that uh, these projects were addressing. They, they lie in the cusp between the promise of a future, a promise of a free spirit, but grounded in the memory or <clears throat> memory of these layers that have evolved over three or five thousand or whatever those years, you know. So I think this it it sets up a conversation on understanding why do we build cities in the way we build? Uh, why do we build homes in the way we build? Is there something more than just the act of living or is there something more that we wish to discover? And I think those questions, both at the functional, philosophic and metaphysical, I think that's that's been the manifestation that one can see in his work. Thank you again for the invitation to this dialogue. And I look forward to this and... I think this is, I hope this kind of response to it. Yeah, it's it's a continuum, as you said. And also, uh, I am not an architect, uh, but have, after having these three conversations with you, Henry and Sachin, uh, even I wish to participate and, and whatever I've understood uh, uh, with a bit of reading and from few people about Charles Korea, I think an amazing like body of work and like, so much so much inspiration for other fields within design also other disciplines within design uh yeah all the best to students and yeah i i can't thank you enough for giving your time uh sharing such wonderful things uh this is a long episode but i thoroughly enjoyed it and and lot many layers uh, lot many threads to discuss uh, so yeah thanks a lot for giving your time thank you Thank you very much. Thanks for listening till the end. Again, a quick note. The drawing board brings you a competition for undergrad architecture students who can submit their project ideas on the theme of designing a memorial for Charles Korea. Last day to submit your concepts is 1st October 2022. More details in the show notes and thedrawingboard.in. Thank you. Bye. Take care. And that's it from today's Gyan session. For show notes and more GAN, visit audiogan.com. And if you wish to connect with me, I am at Audiogan Moments on Instagram. Until then, take care. Hello! It's been a great week on the IBM Podcast Network. On This Round is On Me, Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish Thing, Anish welcomes ultra-marathon runner Shibani Gharat. Shibani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. 
On Cock and Bull, Cyrus, Naveen, Akash and Shreyas talk about the Korean band BTS serving in the military and its repercussions. On Think Fast, Varun and Suchita discuss Wing Greens and their latest acquisitions and about the Indian sexual wellness market. And on Shunyawan, Sheila Dutya is joined by Dinika Bhatia, CEO and founder of Nutty Gritties. They talk about coming from a business family and Dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt-free snacking. Once again, don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcasts.com. We have some exciting new merch out there for you. Also, do follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. And do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to. Appreciate them, rate them and review them wherever you are listening to them. You can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com slash IVM Podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tales, Kotak Privy League Program and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks guys, without you this would not be possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, Blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya and on our show Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IBM Podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>